Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. of celebrating certain events. If we go through the Old Testament, we would see that there were given events and feasts for the Jewish nation that every year on certain days they would come together and have either one day or a whole week's worth of food and drink and celebration. Nowadays, we have birthdays and anniversaries and weddings that we come to celebrate. And in some instances, too, even at the funerals, we will have a lunch and commemoration of those who have passed before us. And so feasts and food is common in our language, in our vocabulary, in our culture, because it's a time to which we can celebrate, be reminded to remember something. In fact, it's even celebrated so much, in fact, that when a college or a professional sports team win a championship, they're invited to the White House for a supper. And I remember one such a few years back at college, uh, I believe it was either baseball or football, I can't remember the actual sport, but this team had won, a bunch of guys, you know, 18 to 22 years old, and they requested from the president uh, a banquet of fast food. And so the president puts together this whole table full of McDonald's and all these other fast food companies, and they have pictures, and and, and I just thought that was interesting because it didn't require the chefs in the kitchen at the White House to cook this elaborate meal. They simply went and got a whole bunch of cheeseburgers and, and double cheeseburgers and all that from McDonald's. But see, this is what the teams like to do when they win. They celebrate. When we have a birthday every year, we celebrate our birthdays. When we have a wedding that comes or a birth of a new child or an anniversary, there's always some call to celebrate, and it's always driven with food. And the interesting thing about this concept and this kind of picture that we're painting for ourselves is in order to partake in that, you have to be included within a certain degree of whatever is being celebrated. If it's a birthday, then you should know the person uh, whose birthday it is, whether it's family or a friend. 
you wouldn't just walk into a stranger's birthday and partake in eating cake and ice cream, but you would have been invited to do so. If you are on a sports team that has won a championship and you're going out for a big feast, you contributed to that championship. Whether it was a player or the water boy or the towel boy or whoever it may be, you were included and found to be worthy to go to that party. All of these feasts that we can talk about, we can zero in on this, this kind of defined view of who should and should not come. For instance, if we host a wedding in the church, the wedding would be for the people of the church, for the family members of the two people being wed, for the friends, relatives. You wouldn't just walk into any wedding just to crash the wedding and partake in the food afterwards. It's just not necessarily a part of many people's idea of appropriateness. And so when we think about feasts, there's always something that kind of defines who is going to partake and who isn't. And as I examined this kind of cultural mindset that we have, I couldn't help but see that there is correlation to what Paul's writing about. Now, we could spend a whole you know, 45 minutes to an hour digging into all of the Old Testament connections between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, and we could talk about the feasts the Jews had partaken in every single year and how they are a type of the Lord's Supper to come, the ultimate banquet, the ultimate feast that Christians can partake in. And more so, we could even go into the end of times and look at Revelation and see the final wedding feast, one that all Christians will partake in together. But I want to unpack this and just focus solely on what Paul's writing today. And I want to help us to conclude our time in understanding the complexities and the simplicities of the Lord's Supper. So as we've established last week, this basis surrounding the institution of the Lord's Supper, we looked at the text uh, from Matthew chapter 26. This week we're going to look and see what Paul's talking about when he says that you ought to be worthy to come to this table. Who can partake in this meal? Simply this, all who are baptized in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are welcomed to the table. This understanding starts to apply some guidelines to which the church conducts this sacrament. See, if we turn all the way back to the time during Acts and even into the first and second and third century of the church, we would see how the church's worship service would be constructed. There would be an opening for prayers. There would be some preaching and reading of God's word and explaining God's word. And this would be done to all who wanted to partake in it, whether they were a believer or not, whether they just walked in off the street that day for the first time, or whether they'd been coming since the beginning of the church. But interestingly enough, when it gets to the time of the Lord's Supper, to the, to the sacrament, the, Lord, the early church held this very pointed belief that not everybody should partake in it. In fact, they would go to the extent to conclude the service for the unbelievers and have them ushered out and essentially dismissed so they can go on their way. But the believers would remain 
and they would partake in this. So those who were unbaptized, those who did not believe, were not permitted to take the Lord's Supper. Seems to be fairly common knowledge today in the church that if you don't believe in the words of the institution, if you don't believe what Jesus is telling you, then why would we partake in it? Why would any person partake in it? This is exactly what Paul's getting at here in the 11th chapter in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's more so than just determining who's worthy and unworthy. Paul's actually addressing a particular situation happening in this church. They were abusing this gift. They were exploiting the gift from God. As Paul notes that some would come in and they would eat and drink until they were full and drunk. They abused the sacrament. And in fact, it causes problems now within their church. So it's only fitting for Paul to address this issue and to warn them against their ongoing abuse. So what is really happening? So instead of the church as we do today, providing for you the bread and wine, the early church would bring their own bread and wine. Each member was charged with bringing something that they could partake in. And in most cases, if there were less fortunate or poor individuals in the congregations, the rich would then share their food and drink with those less fortunate. So what is happening here in the church in Corinth is that the wealthy were not distributing or sharing their bread and wine with the less fortunate. In fact, the wealthy would come in and they would consume the food and all of the drink and get full and drunk on this. It was so much a problem that in this church and in this context, they had formed cliques, groups of people that only these individuals were worthy to partake in this. And so they would have essentially a whole feast every Sunday just surrounding the Lord's Supper. And so as Paul starts, he goes very pointed, you are not partaking in the Lord's Supper. You are not doing it. Because you come and you, you hold back those who you deem to be unworthy, because you hold back those who are less fortunate than you, and you are greedily holding on to your own bread and wine. Paul gives them this warning that you are drinking and eating to your own judgment. Some translations I find to be a little bit more pointed and better. They're eating and drinking to their own damnation. So what does it mean to drink and eat to one's damnation? Well, as we noticed and noted that these individuals are holding back, they're preventing people from partaking in this sacrament. And this is certainly one way, but there are others. If we turn back to last week and we look back at what we talked about, the unworthy person, as we noted at the beginning of the sermon, is one who is an unbeliever. If you don't believe in the words that Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, 
then you are eating and drinking to your own damnation. In fact, we see even more pointed lines drawn for us as John and Mark both tell us that those who are, do not believe will be condemned. We all love John 3.16. It's such a feel-good message right there, but we often exclude 3.17. Because, see, we see that God loves the world, and he gave his son for those who believe. John goes on to write that those who do not believe will be condemned. If we look at what Mark writes in the 16th chapter, Mark says, those who are baptized and believe will be saved, but those who do not believe will be condemned. This theme, as we've talked through so many sermons over the last year and a half, throughout so many passages of Scripture, separate the church, those who believe, and the world, those who do not. And so Paul is giving us this very pointed dividing line to show who is worthy and who is unworthy to partake in the Lord's Supper. So generally, in the early church, this demonstration of belief was marked by baptism. Those who were baptized would partake in the sacrament of the altar. We still strongly hold to that today. In fact, in some Lutheran churches, age isn't even a requirement for the Lord's Supper. It's baptism and only baptism. In some, it's marked by teaching a first communion class, and once the individual understands the concepts and premises around the communion or the Lord's Supper, then they can partake. But yet, as the church continues to go forward, it is marked with two elements, not just baptism, but those who believe. Now, we talked about baptism for a couple weeks, and I can continue to go on that line because of the connections it has with so many tenets of the Christian life. If we are a Christian and we claim to be believers in Jesus, and yet we've never been baptized, what are we waiting for? But for those who have been baptized, it is a remembrance of the promise that God has given us. So in this beautiful promise, it gives us the remembrance piece to the sacrament of the altar. For those who have been baptized can partake in the Lord's Supper. And as we continue to unpack and look at this text, we continue to allow Scripture to be our guide. Both Mark and John give us those clear indications of what happens to the unbelievers. So this question may come to your mind when you come up and partake in the Lord's Supper, as we will celebrate here shortly. Have I committed some terrible sin that would make me unworthy? One that you might think the Lord would, in fact, withhold the bread and wine, prevent you from receiving his body and blood. Well, the reassurance and the good news is this. Unless that sin is unbelief, you are still worthy to come to the table. Because, see, it doesn't matter on whether you find yourself to be worthy or unworthy. The invitation is still present and open to all of those who believe, to all of those who have been baptized. I like what Luther says here in his large catechism on this. He says, thus... 
you have on God's part both the commandment and the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, on your part, you ought not to be impelled by your own need, which hangs around your neck, and which is the very reason for this command and the invitation and the promise. Christ himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That is, those who labor and are heavy laden with sin, fear of death, and the assaults of the flesh and the devil. If you are heavy laden and you feel your weakness, go joyfully to the sacrament and receive refreshment, comfort, and strength. I want to shift gears here just a little bit as we get closer to the end. Instead of focusing solely on who's worthy and unworthy, I want to really more or less drive to this knowledge and place this in your ear of what actually happens in the Lord's Supper. As Luther notes in his large catechism, there's this beautiful promise. He says this, in other words, we go to the sacrament because we receive there a great treasure through and in which we obtain the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because the words are there through which this is imparted. Christ bids me to eat and drink in order that the sacrament may be mine and may be the source of blessing to me as a sure pledge and sign. Indeed, as the very gift that he has provided for me against my sins, death, and all evils. This promise that Luther highlights is given for you. His body, his blood, given for you. This is why when you come and partake and I hand you the, the tray with the bread on it and say, the body of Christ given for you. Each individual person who comes and partakes is handed this with those words for you attached to it. In fact, this is the emphasis that we want to place on these words, is the emphasis on for you. Because this is Christ coming to you to deliver to you this promise, the forgiveness of sin. In fact, it has nothing to do with how worthy or unworthy you think you are, whether you've done enough good works this week or have chalked up enough good Christian things in your life. It has nothing to do with us. It is solely us coming joyfully to this table and partaking in what God has commanded us. Coming to a close in a moment, I want to point to one more element. We've mentioned in the early church the frequency that they partook in the sacrament. Again, turning to Luther's large catechism, I spent a lot of week, a lot of time this week reading this. This is what he says. He says, that is true, but it does not say that we should never partake. Indeed, the very words, as often as you do it, imply that we should do it often. And they are added because Christ wishes the sacrament to be free not bound to a special time like the Passover, which the Jews were obligated to eat only once a year. Precisely on the very evening of the 14th day of the first full moon, without variation of a single day, Christ means to say, I institute a Passover or supper for you, which you shall enjoy not just on this one evening of the year, according to everyone's opportunity and need, but bound to no special place and time. 
Now, we've talked a few times that some churches partake in it every week. Some do it twice a month. Some do it once a month. Some, sadly, do it once a quarter or even just once a year. But Jesus gives us this truth. Because, see, the sacrament of the altar is wrapped into the promise of the gospel. If Jesus is telling you, do this in remembrance of me and do this as often as you meet... For what reason? So you are reminded that your sins have been forgiven. That right there is the beautiful promise that you will receive in this sacrament. The bread and wine paired with God's word to become a sacrament for us. Jesus being bodily present in and with the bread and wine. Jesus giving us this promise of the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus coming to us and saying, take and eat. This is for you. Amen.